We're going to start the session today with Greg Petzner, founder and CEO of Culture IQ and other companies, and uh, we'll have a you know pretty wide-ranging conversation with him across both his entrepreneurial journey as well as his um, other parallel career as an angel investor. Greg, welcome. It's ha great to have you here. Great. It's great to see you again. I'm very excited to participate this morning. Likewise. So, Greg, you are a serial entrepreneur. You've done this multiple times. Tell us about the first company you did, Restricted Stock Systems. When, what, how, why, what happened to it? Yeah, so it's, uh, uh, I want to make sure that you can see me okay. I had a low bandwidth message just now. Can you still hear me? We can, yes, hear you and see you now, yes. Great. Yeah, so it's funny to hear the term serial entrepreneur. This uh, the, Culture IQ is my third company. My first company was started 17 years ago. I was uh, 34 years old, so uh, today I teach uh, 18 to 21 year olds at NYU. I teach entrepreneurship there, uh, and I'm envious of how many uh, this young generation gets started so quickly with entrepreneurship. But for me, I actually had a career. Uh, I was uh, very, always wanted to be, aspired to be an entrepreneur, and that's a, long, a longer story, but finally I took the big leap because before you're a serial entrepreneur, you need to become a first-time entrepreneur. Uh, the name of that company I started was Restricted Stock Systems, and it was, as the name would suggest, it, it was related to comp uh, equity compensation. Um, so it was an early human resources technology platform uh, with a lot of parallels to the company that, I'm, that I founded and that I'm leading today. Uh, but the compelling moment back then was I was actually working on Wall Street. I was at a very uh, successful career at Goldman Sachs and, and or at Merrill Lynch, uh, but I, I, I really aspired to build something. Uh, I was working at great companies, but I wanted to build something, and, uh, and it was right there in front of me. Uh, I was helping entrepreneurs, leaders of companies, process their companies equity compensation programs, and it was a very clumsy process. Uh, even with uh, Goldman Sachs and Merrill Lynch, you know, Goldman Sachs at the time, arguably the most prestigious uh, investment bank and brokerage firm, uh, and Merrill Lynch at the time the largest, both uh, were really struggling with a very cumbersome process. Uh, so uh, I became obsessed with solving this cumbersome problem. And I uh, started working nights and weekends, as is very typical for, for an entrepreneur. Uh, and, uh, and a few months into that process, uh, what took the big leap. And for me, it, it felt like uh, rolling away the safety net, you know, leaving a full-time role, leaving a, a, a well-known big company. It was a very lucrative industry. I was, uh, and. Uh, really went for it. Started writing my business plan and interviewing potential customers, and and there it is. 17 years ago, the launch of Restricted Stock Systems. Uh, and you chose it? to do this, uh, focus on that, the problem of managing the equity compensations of companies because it was a problem that you had been familiar with from your career in finance. You knew the problem, you knew the process complexity and the cumbersome issues involved in that, and you chose to write software to solve that. That's right, and, and you know, a lot of people talk about R&D, research and development. 
The research part is critical. Uh, I recognize the challenge from my seat, right, as working in financial services and trying to service customers, but there are other stakeholders in this process, right? So my customers, uh, executives at companies that were either managing their own equity compensation or for, their, for, for all their employees, uh, the operations and legal departments in the financial institution, the transfer agents, the legal, uh, the legal counsel, uh, the SEC with filings required for these transactions. So there were a lot of stakeholders. So, so obviously I felt the pain and I recognized the opportunity, but what was very important was the research part. And I actually saw the problem at, at Merrill Lynch and Goldman Sachs, but what I started doing was I started uh, reaching out to other companies and surveying uh, all the other major financial institutions, reaching out to other shareholders at other companies, the transfer agents, the law firms, to really under, to confirm that they also had a challenge and if there was a solution, would they engage nice. a company that had that solution. And how much uh, did you arrive at as the amount they are willing to pay to buy the solution to their pain point? Yeah, well that's, that's the age-old problem with uh, pricing technology, right? It's intellectual property. There's, uh, it's, there's not a significant cost of goods sold other than servicing and selling. Uh, so when you have this intellectual property, how do you price it? Um, so a few factors. One uh, is, you know, how are they currently managing this process? Uh, and at the financial institutions, it was uh, teams of legal professionals and operations professionals. Uh, that was the main cost. They were also paying uh, outside counsel, legal fees, and transfer agent fees. So there was uh, a, an alternative cost that I could evaluate. Um, there was also the, the possibility, uh, not the possibility, the, the reality that some of these potential customers had built some technology to address this problem. So there's also, which often the case, a build versus buy uh, decision that these buyers would have to make. Um, so, and then there's some, some art, it's not just science, you know, really determining what feels like the right fees and what is the right fee structure, right? Is it per yeah. person? Is it per transaction? Is it for the overall enterprise? Is it unlimited use? Um, is it depend on the size of the transactions, the number of employees? So there's a lot that goes into it. People sometimes say you put your finger in the air, uh, but there, there really are a lot of moving parts, even though it's intellectual property that you're selling. So how much did you end up, what was the price point? The, we ended up, um, my business plan assumed that our average price would be uh, $120,000 a year for a financial institution. Uh, so that was part mm -hmm. of the art, right? $10,000 a month. $120,000 a year. Uh, we were trying to balance what they would be paying internally. Um, after, when we, we sold that company after seven years, I'll talk a little bit about uh, that process, but um, the average customer when we sold, the average enterprise account was about $140,000. Uh, so okay. with inflation, with inflation, we actually, uh, our model, our business model, and, our, and the reality of our business really did line up. So we ended up pricing it correctly, which, uh, uh, which is great. And is this a company that you raised money for? And what was, uh, what was the financing strategy that you bootstrapped? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. So 
we did raise capital. Uh, the initial capital was uh, $2 million uh, from angel investors. Um, the valuation at the time was uh, $3 million pre-money. This is 17 years ago. So that might sound low, but it was a 20-page business plan. Uh, we had some customers that had agreed to be beta test customers, but when we, when we raised that capital, when I raised that capital, we had uh, no product, uh, no customers, no brand. Uh, so I would argue it's probably pretty fair valuation. Uh, it's so a very fair valuation, and, and at that time, this was possible. In, in the late 90s, concept financing, financing based on pure business plan and no products, no customer, was possible. Nowadays, it's a lot less possible. It's less possible and, less, uh, and it doesn't make sense. Today, there's so much open source technology. There's so many ways to, uh, to test your product, to launch your product with very little cost. When I started that business in 2000, uh, it was very expensive. You had to have servers. You had to manage your own technology. You had to buy Microsoft or Oracle software. Uh, and it, was, uh, it wasn't really possible to build, quickly build prototypes and test your product. So um, was that the only capital in the company, or was there more later stage financing? Yeah, so that $2 million uh, took us for about almost two years. We raised another $3 million, so a total of just under $5 million. Uh, and that, uh, that first $2 million, though, did allow us to, we hired about 12 people, uh, mostly developers uh, and analysts. We launched, and we actually, within the first year, we had uh, our first three large enterprise accounts. The first accounts were actually much bigger than the average. Uh, our first few accounts were four and $500,000 a year uh, accounts, so we were very fortunate. It seems backwards, right, to have to be an early stage company, your first few clients being such large customers that would trust a small startup, but we were very fortunate uh, that we, we did find a problem that people needed help solving. Yeah. And so what, you said seven years later you sold the company, what was the, scale of the exit, and how did that come about? Did they find you? Did you find them? How did that matchmaking happen? Yeah, I think this is a good lesson for, for people listening who are interested in kind of how that process works. So what, it, what the reality is that as you're running a company, along the way at all the industry conferences, uh, at uh, analyst meetings, um, networking, you end up meeting the potential partners and buyers along the way. Uh, so when we eventually sold, we knew all the potential buyers. They knew us. They knew me. I knew their leaders. And uh, at first, they think you're a cute company, which you are, right, and you're, you're ambitious and cute. Uh, eventually, they, they see you bringing in meaningful accounts and clients. And then eventually, depending on their own strategy, Sometimes it lines up that they feel it's complementary to what they're doing, in this case of an acquisition like this, or it's an improvement of what they're, of what they're already doing where, you can, where you can, we can do it much better. So for us, it was, it was the latter. Um, we were acquired by the largest uh, equity stock transfer company in the world. It was a, uh, an, Australian, it's an Australian public company called ComputerShare. Um, we had reached US to scale. We had 20 
three employees at our peak. It was a small business, um, but I am proud that we did cross over that million-dollar threshold that this call is all about. We were at about a $5 million run rate uh, when we run rate meeting. It was all SaaS. It was all recurring revenue, about $5 million of revenue. Um, we had about 23 employees, and we were acquired uh, for, and I don't think it was a public record, but um, it was about five times our trailing revenue, uh, the acquisition. Uh, and we became the, uh, they had two, they had acquired other businesses, and so they had three solutions uh, that really accomplished the same thing. Uh, we became the surviving solution, and today, 17 years later, there are about 500 companies still on that platform, so it's uh, I'm really proud that, that, that we, we built something Fabulous. to last. Okay. So you had a successful exit on that company. Um, Let's talk about Culture IQ. What is the genesis of Culture IQ? And obviously you're starting Culture IQ with capital. You have personal capital at this point. It's much further along in your journey. What prompted you to start this company? What was the premise and why did you choose to do Culture IQ and what's the journey? Yeah, that's a great question. So, so, um, the, journey, the first company was about nine years from start to finish because I did stay as the president of my company as a subsidiary of the acquiring company for some time. Okay. Um, but during that time, uh, so that was my first really selling into human resources. So it was a, a human resource technology, so a lot of parallels to what we've built today. Um, but the culture part of the journey uh, in the middle of all that, and I know we're going to talk about angel investing uh, in, uh, in the latter half of our conversation, um, just to quickly mention, uh, during that time when I was running uh, restricted stock systems, I ended up um, becoming an investor, an early investor in Zappos.com. And of course, Zappos.com is very famous for its company culture. Uh, co company culture was a key strategy for building our brand, uh, building employee engagement, and of course, building incredible uh, customer satisfaction and customer service. Um, so the culture part of the story comes in through my uh, investment and involvement with Zappos. I was an investor there. I was also a consultant. I was a vendor. I was uh, supplying them with another company I'd started, which I don't know if I'll have time to talk about today, um, and a friend of the company. So, so we'll get talking about angel investing and why I invested, but from the, the current company that I'm running today, Culture IQ, the HR technology with the first startup and being part of Zappos, going from a few dozen employees to thousands of employees using culture as a strategy was very inspiring for me. Uh, mm -hmm. I started teaching, teaching at NYU six years ago, and so that brought in the academic part of, of HR and culture. <clears throat> and uh, four years ago, Put all, we, I put all that together, the HR technology uh, experience, the culture experience, and the academic experience. And, and similar to the first company, uh, obviously recognized that there was a, an opportunity um, to solve a problem. And the problem or the opportunity for culture, of course, which I'm sure everyone on the company realize, recognizes, because we've all been part of company, a company culture or company's cultures, um, the big opportunity was that the world has changed so dramatically, right? The workforce has changed so dramatically, the makeup of the workforce, uh, the way people work, the way people communicate. 
Um, so most of the most organizations over the last hundreds of years, uh, and in the industrial age more recently, um, have. Um, when it comes to company culture, have typically only simply done an annual employee engagement survey. Uh, but in the modern era, that just isn't enough anymore. Right? Employees are expecting to give and get feedback much more frequently. Um, there's, te there's technology to, to communicate much more frequently. Uh, and employees, the youngest generation of employees, the millennial generation, um, are giving and getting feedback on all parts of their life, their restaurants, their travel, their photographs, their, their personal life, their, their everything in their life yet at work, giving and getting feedback once a year just wasn't enough. Um, so that's where Culture IQ was born, uh, putting that background together, um, converging with a very different workforce today in the world, uh, and we built Culture IQ to help companies um, understand and strengthen their organizational culture and their employee engagement. And uh, what, was it, what strategy did you follow to build the company? Did you, of course, this is happening in a different era of computing. You, you can build prototypes and MVPs very, very cheaply and get, you know, customers to engage with you early. So what was, the, what was different about how you built Culture IQ? Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a really good point and a great question. So, uh, as I mentioned earlier, uh, when I started my first business, there was no real ability to prototype and test things quickly and, and inexpensively. Uh, there's no excuse today. Uh, so, how I did it differently, I did the same type of research, um, asking a lot of the stakeholders, uh, talking to companies, talking to leaders. Um, research, even speaking with uh, incumbents, companies that have done this for decades, and to really understand the market. And then uh, I started prototyping um, without raising capital. And of course, I had some resources of my own. I was able to leave my, uh, start working on this full time uh, with, you know, with the financial security that I developed from my prior two startups. Uh, so for about eight months, I interviewed all the stakeholders involved in this process. Um, many stakeholders. I built uh, a first-generation prototype, or, um, what I would call an alpha prototype. So it was a, a beta product is something that companies can actually use. Alpha is more front-end to demonstrate how a company would use a product. So I built the alpha prototype, outsourcing development, design, research, uh, and and once um, the great thing about that is some of those early stakeholders ended up being early adopters. So I had eight companies that signed contracts that stated that they would be beta test customers based on what they saw and what they heard. Um, so with eight customers signed up without a finished product, but with eight customers, a prototype, and my track record at this point, then I went to some of the same investors and a few new investors, and in a very similar manner, raised uh, $2 million. Uh, a little further along than the first business, but raised uh, actually $2.25 million. Uh, and, uh, and then the process became very similar because in any business, anyone that's listening, you need to build your team, you need to build your product, you need to find customers, and that's exactly what we did. And um, when did you start Culture IQ? This was July of 2013, so we just finished our, our fourth anniversary. So uh, where where are you now with Culture IQ, and how much additional funding did you raise 
from there on? Yeah, so the first $2 million, uh, similar to my first business, we, uh, we capitalized ourselves for, for a year and a half, almost two years. Um, we had our first uh, 50 or 60 customers uh, uh, subscribe. Subscribe means it's, a, it's uh, a software as a service, a SaaS product, so annual subscriptions or, or more, sometimes two to three years. Uh, and we uh, raised another $3 million uh, October of 2015, uh, and uh, so we've raised a total of five, $5.25 million, and today uh, over 800 companies have, uh, have used our, our process, our framework, uh, the way we help people measure and understand and strengthen their culture. We have users in over 100 countries. Uh, we have close to 20 languages that we users use, uh, interact with our, with our software. Uh, and we also have a, a significant client services uh, and strategy team uh, to help people really design their, their uh, what it is they're trying to accomplish and understand um, the data that, they, that they're collecting. Greg, uh, you, the way you build companies and the way you finance companies and the way you manage companies very much, um, you know, very aligned with the way we kind of uh, advise entrepreneurs to build companies, which is to be capital efficient, which is to not flush yourselves in capital rather than, you know, rather get as many customers as possible and focus on organic growth and revenue growth and take capital as you go along but not overfund companies. So this gives us a good segue into um, angel investing. What have you learned in terms of general principles of doing startups? What works, what doesn't for you, both as an entrepreneur and also as an investor? Right. One of my advisors once told me uh, the best time to raise capital is when people are willing to give it to you, right? So uh, I've raised capital 14 times across uh, five businesses that I've been either founded or been involved in, in helping to start. And every time I've raised capital, uh, I've raised capital sooner than I actually needed it, uh, both the initial capital uh, and then the follow-on capital. The best time to raise is when people will give it to you, but also the worst time to raise capital is when you're desperate, right, when you have no leverage and then you have no, no negotiability. Once you run out of capital, it's over. Uh, then you have to restart the business. So, so I would say, so I don't think anyone listening needs to raise two million dollars. It really depends on the business you're launching. But I, I've been fortunate that I uh, came from Wall Street, so I was able to access um, very wealthy individuals as angel investors. Uh, and then my second and third business, I had more uh, track record and access. But I don't want anyone to call to finish this call and think I need to raise two million dollars to have a successful business. I think you can. Uh, you're right, I think bootstrapping is really important, and I think that more, more atypical, that seed capital just needs to be enough to build that initial team, build that initial product, and get to market and show some success and some momentum, then raise the next million or whatever amount of capital that you need. Um, so um, there's a lot of capital available, a lot of access, and more and more investors are investing earlier 
as access because they recognize that they're not investing early. I'm talking about professional investors, institutional investors. If they don't invest early, then sometimes they get shut out from investing later. So there's more, so there's always been angel investors, but now there's actually institutions that focus on the earliest stages of investing. So there's a lot of capital, but you do need to do a lot up front to prove your concept. You need to bootstrap it, and you need to accomplish a lot um, with very little up front because there's just so many resources today. So there's so it's really a great combination. There's more there's more capital than there's ever been, yet it's easier that to actually prove your concept than it's ever been. Um, so well, so take the, the capital. Where the train meets, and 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 the issue that our audience needs to be aware of because we operate at really, really early stages, is that even that capital, that excessive capital, that there is a lot of capital in the seed market right now, but they all want proven concepts where That's you've right. done customer development. And if you haven't done customer development, if you don't have customer proof, if you don't actually, they're looking for paying customers. They want the business model, the pricing model, the value proposition, everything validated before they're going to put in any money, which means that we are talking about six, nine, 12, 18, sometimes 24 months of business building in a bootstrap mode before you're going to access any capital whatsoever. And that is something that has happened as a result of the fact that it has become very affordable, inexpensive to, to do all that early stage work. And that is just the reality of today's game. That's right. It's the sweat equity, and it's, uh, it's very, very uh, – that's why it requires so much energy and such a commitment, uh, because when you're first starting, you have very few resources, often no capital. Uh, you have to convince your team to join you and believe in your dream. Uh, you have to convince customers to, to test you, uh, and you have to actually build something that adds value. Um, that's why this zero to one million dollar threshold this, uh, is often called the impossible stage. It is the most challenging time in a business's existence. So what you're doing is really important, and what people are on the call are hoping to do, unless they've already done this, is really hard. Uh, so listening to calls like this, being a part, part of accelerators and, and having mentors is really important because there are just so many things you have to figure out during this initial stage. So um, just an extension of what we, we were just talking about, the zero to one million phase, you know, the other issue that has come up because of this excessive seed capital in the industry you know, we, let's say there is validation, let's say there is some amount of seed capital that has gone in. In parallel, the other trend that has happened in the startup industry for the last, you know, five, seven years is Series A has moved further out. And the, the reason that is happening is because, you know, the funds have become bigger and bigger. Why has that happened? Because bigger funds means bigger management fees for the fund managers, the VCs get more management fee if they have raised larger funds. Now, larger funds means you have to invest larger chunks of money in even in the Series A. So that means that you have to have a company that can sustain a valuation reasonably to be able to raise $5 million, $7 million, sometimes $10 million right away. So as a result, the Series A gap has opened up between seed, you know, pre-seed seed and series A, 
And a lot of startups have fallen in that Series A gap. You know, uh, if you look at the numbers of seed investments, and, and you know, a lot, of money, a lot of people have a lot of money in angel investment in schools, so a lot of people without knowing what they're doing are putting money in, in seed rounds, it's sometimes friends and family money and so forth, and they're falling in the Series A gap as well and losing a lot of their net worth. 70,000 angel investments or seed investments, not just angel seed funds as well, a year versus the number of funds, companies that get BC funded is still pretty small, 1,200 round about there. So talk about how does an angel investor mitigate falling into the Series A gap or an entrepreneur mitigate the Series A gap? Yeah, it's, it's a great point. And we're in a really interesting time in the capital markets uh, and especially in the companies that require funding um, because we're really straddling this time where, where investors want to see that a business can be sustainable. Uh, at the same time, uh, to, to reach the next stage of professional investments, what, what is often called Series A, which is beyond the angel investors and now the institutions are starting to invest, um, they want to see growth. They want to see, uh, they see acceleration. So you have to balance, um, and sometimes it's very expensive to get that growth. So what companies have to balance is, is the optimal amount of growth showing that your company is, is accelerating and, and people are adopting and keeping your solution. But at the same time, you're not racing towards uh, running out of money or you're so cost inefficient that but putting more money in um, the economics, the unit economics, uh, never, never reach a point where it's a sustainable and healthy business. Um, so, so this is um, the gap that I see now. Uh, you know, in, these institutions want to see that you have good economics, good unit economics, that you have the, a future of reaching uh, sustainability, profitability, uh, and value, but at the same time, the, the entrepreneurs and the early the leaders of small young companies um, sometimes are so, have so little, so few resources that, uh, and it is very expensive, uh, relatively speaking, to, to get the, to build your product and launch with your, get your first customers. Uh, you have this very careful, this very um, uh, gap that can develop. Um, and one thing that I guess to close that gap, a few things. So one, for both my first business and this business, um, we ended up raising uh, additional capital as seed two. Right, so the first rounds were more early angel investors. The second round uh, did bring in some of the early stage investors, institutional investors, but instead of doing a big $7 million, $10 million, $12 million Series A, we did a $3 million uh, follow-on round with, with improved valuation, significantly higher valuation, but kind of meeting that gap in the middle, right, from that earliest stage when we had no product and no customers to now we have customers but maybe haven't proven uh, the growth model yet to the point where we, where someone wants to invest or institutions want to invest $10 million to just ratchet up the growth. So sort of that middle area can, can help mitigate that gap. Um, so it's really important that when you select your first investors um, that, uh, that you 
that not just institutions have backup capital, but your first investors, um, un working with them to so that there's a two-way understanding that there's possibility that they will be putting more money in before you go out to institutions. That's what we what I did with my with my three businesses. Uh, my existing investors uh, and new investors came in, but before Series A. Well, and, and in your case, which is a very good strategy, in my opinion, for the kind of businesses we are talking about often, the total amount of money that you've raised is five, $5.2 million in, in a couple of rounds, maybe even three rounds. But, you know, you raise a $2 million to $2.2 million round, then you raise a $3 million round, and, and you're operating with a very, very capital-efficient structure. There are funds. Right now there are actually funds developing that are interested in kind of bridging that gap of, you know, this, the larger funds that are that can start at a five, seven million Series A investment. If you're not ready for that, you you need other funds that are smaller funds that are willing to play in the two to three million Series A or two to three million Seed two kind of. Space. That's right. and, and that trend is quite active right now, and you kind of need to, you know, look for those kinds of funds that are willing to play in this capital-efficient game. And, 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 and so, so, you know, for the audience, what the discussion that we are having right now is, is actually quite an intricate discussion. You need to, if you want to successfully raise money, you're going to need to pay attention to all these trends and all these dynamics and movements in the funding, uh, you know, landscape because things are changing, things are shifting in response to the, you know, big trends. And, and that actually gives me a segue into another gigantic trend which has, you know, operated like a tsunami in the um, funding universe, which is this unicorn mania. You know, as an angel investor, you could get buried under late-stage uh, liquidation preferences, these very large funds. I mean, SoftBank today is a over a $100 billion fund. So when you see a fast-growth, really high-performing startup today that is in Series C or Series D, let's say SoftBank or something equivalent comes in with a $3 billion round with huge liquidation preferences, an angel investor can get completely washed out. How do you protect yourself against this kind of scenario? Yeah. Well, it's a really high-class problem, right? If, if you're an angel investor and you uh, invest in a company and it ends up having a multi-billion dollar <clears throat> valuation, what a high-class problem, right? Because as you know, and that's part of why you're here, so many companies never even get to a million dollars. Uh, and and so so to reach a billion dollars, which never really happened in the private markets before, because most companies would go public much earlier. Uh, today, because there's so much private capital as opposed to the public markets, companies are staying private longer. And as a result, um, the most successful companies are reaching these these private valuations that, in off, often cases, are greater than their public market counterparts. Right. So you have uh, you know Airbnb, which is uh, I think the, if, you know, market cap is the second largest um, 
hotel uh, in the world. It was the first until a recent merger with uh, two other large hotel companies. So, so Airbnb is private, so be, they don't need to go to the public markets to raise public capital because there's so much private capital. So, so I haven't answered your question directly. In my experience, because I have, I did invest in a company that became a unicorn, which was Zappos, right? I invested as an, an angel investor, and, it, and we eventually sold the company for uh, 1.2 billion dollars was the value when it sold. Um, it was uh, a really high-class problem, right? First of all, I was proud to be part of an organization that was so successful, and it ended up inspiring my current business, right? So, so right there, it's a win. Um, but even those liquidation preferences, it's really just to protect those institutions. If you go to the public markets, there's also protections for, for the public market investors. So I never look at it as being washed out. I look at it as you're getting diluted over, diluted over and over again. But the overall pie, right, you have a much, much smaller piece, but it's a very big pie. Uh, and, and these early stage investors, whether it's angel investors or some of the seed and angel funds and, and even Series A funds, they're thrilled when, they're, when, they're custom, when their companies that they've invested in, or if I'm an angel that I've invested in, reach those billion dollar kind of stratosphere, because even though my ownership becomes small and there's lots of liquidation preferences ahead of me, I've picked one of the few true winners uh, that are really, really changing the world and disrupting an industry at, at, at least. Um, so I really don't worry about those liquidation preferences because as long as there's not a, a, a huge, a hiccup where the company drops in valuation dramatically, uh, then those liquidation preferences are often never even exercised um, because so, they're really um, more action. So I'm going to have to counter you on that because there are lots of problems happening in unicorn mania. There are actually huge. Zappos is, is one of the great success stories of the industry. And by the way, it is before unicorn mania took hold. Right now, the amount of um, you know, late stage capital that is really flooding the startup market is huge, and there's a lot of pseudo unicorns, companies that actually don't, are not really unicorns. They're being stuffed with liquidation preferences and turned into, into unicorns, and inevitably they're running into problems. The public market is not in a bubble. The private market is in a bubble. The private market does not. Therefore, you have private market valuations that the public market will not sustain. So, so I think if you actually talk to people who are seriously in early stage investment right now, they're not happy. And even in a hyper successful situation like Uber, why do you think Benchmark is fighting with Travis Kalanick? If you look at what's happening, I'm not going to go into the details of that scenario right now because I want to switch to the mentoring portion of our uh, conversation today. But, but study what's happening at, um, at the benchmark versus Travis Kalanick situation. Um, benchmark put in $27 million into Uber, and they're buried under liquidation preferences right now. And Travis personally has taken $100 million out of that company already to let some of the you know, quote-unquote, dumb money um, in. So, so this kind of situations right now, the market is full up, and I think very active angel investors as well as early-stage funds have to pay attention to what, uh, you know, how to deal with the situation. So, Greg, last question before we switch to mentoring is what, when you are looking for an investment, you know, I'm sure you are, looking, evaluating at investments, 
because of where you are in your career right now and your track record, what what philosophy do you apply to looking at those opportunities? Yeah. Yeah. So first of all, just with your point about value, I think your point about valuation is a is I agree with you. I, when I mentioned uh, you know a high class problem of be investing in a business that becomes a, a unicorn, um, I wasn't referring. I, I wasn't referring, and I, and I completely agree with you that some of the valuations today um, that a business um, may be a unicorn um, in an inflated valuation situation, that, that's different, right? When Zappos was a billion-dollar company, we had... Uh, Real company. Uh, yeah, we had $600 million of revenue the year prior to that. So um, today, you know, businesses with, uh, you know, $10, 20000000000 billion valuation that that don't maybe have the metrics to, to match. Um, with regard to, um, uh, so, so, that's, uh, so I agree with you with regard to valuation. There are, um, there are potentially some real challenges today with valuation. Um, what do I look for when I invest? I think you said the, uh, uh, because professional investors use, use the term uh, dumb money. So if I try to compete with professional investors, that's very challenging, right? Because uh, the typical venture fund, I, I, had a, I hosted a panel with three venture funds uh, last year, and I asked each of them, how many companies, how many business plans do you look at each year? Um, each of them said uh, 2,000 business plans, uh, and they make uh, typically 1% of those end up being investments. So I can't look at 2,000 business plans, so I'm dumb money, right? I can't look at everything and pick one out of 100. So instead, as an angel investor, what I well, try to do I'll push back on that because you have experience of actually building companies in certain domains. Granted, of course, your, you know, venture capitalists be, can be broader, although that's also, you know, somewhat broader, not that much broader. Yeah. They also have domain-specific exp expertise. You have... You, you, I, I don't categorize your money as dumb, dumb money at all. I would say it's one of the best in class money is angel investors who have experience of building companies. Those are, that is the best in class money actually. Yeah. So continue please. My, yeah, so my, my point is that I don't get to see thousands of opportunities. So instead, yes. <laughs> um, because of my experience, I only pick companies where I truly understand the business uh, and, and often have a chance to participate as a consultant, as an advisor, as a board member. Uh, otherwise, for me to just look at a handful of ideas and make an investment, I actually don't, don't, don't do that um, because I just don't see the flow and I don't know other industries as well as industries that I have operated uh, and built companies. So, so I make very, very few investments, uh, mm -hmm. but I make... Uh, but I make uh, larger investments, and that would often be, uh, people would often say that's a bad strategy to make very concentrated bets. Um, but I only make a couple of investments a year, typically. Uh, typically, I'm very familiar with the company. Uh, with Zappos, um, I, was our, I operated in the retail and apparel industry for, uh, for 10 years uh, before moving into HR and technology. I was a vendor, so I was selling products to Zappos. Um, and I was consulting, helping with their private labels. So I 
wasn't just investing because they were a growing company, I was investing because I was involved and I really understood their industry and their company. So my advice for angel investors is um, it's always exciting to invest in, there's so many exciting uh, verticals today um, and, and I'm fascinated by them, right? Um, and a lot of them will change the world, but uh, unless you're gonna spend a lot of time really understanding that industry or understanding the companies, my strategy, since you're asking me, is to only invest in things where I really understand and where I can add, add value. Um, and, uh, and really, um, so that, that's my strategy. Very few investments, but investments in companies that I truly understand and where I can actually add value. Makes sense. All right, let's switch to the mentoring section of the uh, session today. Let me set a few um, you know, caveats before we dive in. Remember, those of you who are pitching today and in subsequent sessions, we are on your side. This is a working session. We are here just to, you know, work on your problems, your questions, your roadblocks, etc. And we are on your side. You can feel completely safe to discuss whatever you want to discuss and we'll try to add value. And if you disagree with feedback you get here, that's fine too. You can, it's your company. Ultimately, you take feedback from various people and, and decide what you want to do with it. One thing you have to, however, pay attention to is not be obsessed about raising money constantly. In, in, in the work we do here, we see entrepreneurs who come here who are not nowhere near ready to raise money.